Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today we're continuing our Grand Round series with a presentation on diverticular disease by Dr. Sean Langenfeld. Dr. Langenfeld is a native of Omaha, Nebraska. He completed his undergraduate education at St. Louis University, graduating summa cum laude. He continued at SLU for his medical degree and then joined the general surgery program at the University of Kansas School of Medicine in Wichita. He then completed his fellowship in colon and rectal surgery at the University of Texas in Houston prior to returning to Omaha as assistant professor of surgery and associate program director for the general surgery residency program at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Langenfeld is very active on social media. His Twitter handle is posted in our show notes, and he is the most recent recipient of the Victor W. Fazio Award for Editorial Excellence in recognition of his work for diseases of the colon and rectum. Without further ado, let's learn more about diverticulitis. Take it away, Dr. Langenfeld. Thank you, Dr. Kasia. So uh, I was invited to talk today about uh, uncomplicated diverticulitis. And just to kind of set the stage, diverticulosis, as most of the audience is aware, is extremely common in the Western world. By the time we turn 80, about 80% of us have it. Uh, what causes it? Just a Western diet, too much protein, not enough fiber. There's certainly a genetic component to it as well. But thankfully, most patients are never going to have a problem with the diverticulosis. Only about 15 to 20% are going to develop diverticulitis. So... Um, just talking about diverticulitis, when I am speaking with the residents, I, I put it in two very simple categories. One is complicated and one is uncomplicated. So complicated disease is free perforation with peritonitis, sepsis, requiring emergency surgeries and colostomies, or maybe a fistula to the bladder or the vagina or the skin, or pelvic abscess that requires percutaneous drainage. And then some people also place a large bowel obstruction secondary to inflammation in that category of, uncompli- or of complicated diverticulitis. But uncomplicated diverticulitis is I have pain, I get antibiotics, and I feel better. Now, complicated diverticulitis often requires either emergency or elective surgery, and I could spend an hour talking about just that. But today I've been asked to focus on uncomplicated disease. So uh, it doesn't take too long to realize that uncomplicated is sort of a moving target as far as a definition, but the way we're going to define it today is acute colonic inflammation limited to the colon wall and the adjacent tissue in the absence of a free perforation, a pelvic abscess, a fistula, or obstruction. How does this present? Most patients are going to have fevers and left lower quadrant abdominal pain. They're going to have stable vital signs and localized abdominal tenderness rather than guarding a rebound. They will frequently have leukocytosis. And uh, universally, these patients do and should receive uh, CT scans of the abdomen pelvis with oral and IV contrast. And that's going to demonstrate colonic information with pericolonic fast training. And then occasionally you see some pericolic air or maybe a small pericolic abscess uh, right adjacent to the area of inflammation. And that's still considered uncomplicated disease. So how is it managed acutely? Um, the acute management of uncomplicated diverticulitis is non-operative. We do not operate on these people acutely when they get sick. Non-operative management has a greater than 95% success rate. There's really no reasonable argument for primary surgical intervention in the 21st century. The current focus is instead on where to treat, how to treat, and then for how long to treat. So as far as where to treat, the traditional approach for diverticulitis is the patients get admitted to the hospital, they have bowel rest, 
IV fluids and IV antibiotics. But currently, outpatient management is three times more common than inpatient management. Outpatient therapy, which basically is diet is tolerated, traditionally oral antibiotics, that's safe for most patients, and that includes elderly and patients with comorbidities. Even in that subgroup of seemingly frail patients, the success rate is about 94 to 97%, and that results in a cost savings of up to 83% compared to inpatient management. So if that's the case, who needs to be admitted to the hospital? Well, patients that are particularly dehydrated or if they're throwing up and they can't tolerate uh, fluids, if they need serial exams for you to prove to yourself that it's truly uncomplicated disease, if they're exceptionally frail and have a poor support structure at home, those are patients that would still require admission to treat their diverticulitis. Uh, once you decide where you're going to treat, you got to decide how you're going to treat. You know, traditionally, we think that diverticulitis is a microperforation, and so infection has long been thought to cause diverticulitis, and antibiotic therapy is, is surgical dogma. There are some new theories emerging that focus more on a primary inflammatory process similar to inflammatory bowel disease, and actually mesalamine, which traditionally used for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, has actually shown promise as monotherapy for diverticulitis. And so the need for antibiotics on complicated disease has been challenged in Europe, and this has been going on for a long time. Most of the studies are very small and heterogeneous, and uh, over time, though, we started to have some better studies that I want to just quickly highlight. first one came out of British Journal of Surgery in 2012. It was from the AVOD group, A-V-O-D. This is a multi-center Swedish randomized controlled trial of 623 patients with CT-confirmed uncomplicated uh, disease. They randomized people into two groups. Group one uh, got admitted to the hospital and received antibiotics in the hospital for seven days. Group two got admitted to the hospital and just got IV fluids without antibiotics. Uh, they followed those patients and found no significant difference between the two groups for treatment failures. They found no difference in, in abdominal pain, no difference in progression of complicated disease, or even length of hospital stay. And the recurrence at one year between the two groups was identical at 16%. Now, uh, there's some caveats to that study. It's a very popular study to be quoted, but it included 10 centers. It occurred over seven years, and it had a lot of issues with low accrual of eligible patients. Additionally, 40% of the episodes were recurrent uh, diverticulitis rather than a primary episode, so perhaps these patients already declared themselves as having a benign course. It should be noted that that same author group published two more case series showing a 95% success rate for outpatient observation without antibiotics as well. So that approach is certainly promising. A more recent and probably more important trial, also British Journal Surgery, this time 2017, was the Diabolo trial. And that's a multicenter RCT from the Netherlands that focused on a first episode uh, primary index episode of acute, uncomplicated left-sided diverticulitis. Additionally, uh, they made sure that the episode was proven by CT scan, and they did include uh, the Hinchy 1B category. Hinchy 1B is when patients have a small pericolic abscess, a pericolic abscess less than 5 centimeters. That made up 8% of their cohort. And ultimately, it should be noted that these pe people with pericolic abscess have the same outcome as those with Hinchy-1A disease, which is more traditionally considered uncomplicated. But what they found in their trial is that there was no difference, again, in complication rates, recurrence, readmission, or need for surgery. Um, and so 
basically what that means is that the jury is still out, but the evidence is starting to stack up in favor of no antibiotics for therapy. It's making it harder for me to justify giving my patients Cipro and Flagyl, which we've been doing for years. Uh, if you base your practice on the ASCRS, uh, American Society of Colon Rectal Surgeons Practice Parameters, which I do, uh, they state that further research is required before adopting an antibiotic-free treatment strategy. And so currently in the United States, it's still the standard of care to give them antibiotics. And what you've chosen to give them antibiotics, I guess the question is what to give them. Um, we typically use broad-spectrum antibiotics with gram-negative and anaerobic coverage. If you have the patient in the hospital and give them intravenous therapy, uh, the first line of therapy is piperacillin, tazobactam, or zosin, but just equally as acceptable as carbapenems and third-generation cephalosporins. If you're treating them with oral therapy as an outpatient, the traditional approach has been a fluoroquinolone combined with metronidazole, usually either Cipro or a levofloxacin. The length of antibiotic therapy, once you've chosen what you're going to give them, is arbitrary. And it's usually some multiple, either five or seven. So people go five days, 10 days, seven days, 14 days. There's no clear guidelines on how long to give it. But I think that it's pretty well accepted in our field that once the patient's symptoms have resolved, you can safely stop the antibiotics. And there is uh, some side effects to giving them too much therapies. A lot of these patients can develop C. diff, or diarrhea. Now, once you're done and the patient's better, the classical teaching has always been that you should follow that patient up with a colonoscopy. Uh, I was taught when I was in medical school that cancer can clinically and radiographically mimic diverticulitis, and so six weeks after uh, you've treated them, uh, do a scope and rule out malignancy. Uh, this was based on historical data, much of which predated modern computer tomography. Older studies, just using four and eight slice CTs, already show a 94% sensitivity and 99% specificity for, for diverticulitis. And so with 16 and 32 slice CT scans, I'm not sure that we're really confusing cancer with diverticulitis very often. Uh, so as far as who gets a colonoscopy, most people will agree that colonoscopy is still warranted if somebody has complicated disease, if somebody has an uncertain diagnosis, for existence, they have wall thickening, you can't say if it's diverticulitis or something else, if they have a change in bowel habits, rectal bleeding, and anybody that otherwise requires colorectal cancer screening, uh, they would still get it. But what about for simple and complicated disease? If you read the GI literature and the colorectal literature, almost every month there's a new study uh, on this topic. They're often biased and heterogeneous, but they all invariably conclude that routine scopes are unnecessary. There's probably one good uh, systematic review that looked at 1,800 patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis, and what they found was that the adenoma detection rate was 14%, and the pooled prevalence of a combination of advanced adenomas and cancer was 5%, and if you compare that to the general public that has a 5 to 10% prevalence of advanced adenoma and cancer, you really can't uh, necessarily justify routine colonoscopies. My personal opinion, which is somewhat biased because I still scope these patients, is that the scope is not used solely to exclude uh, sigmoid malignancy. You're also looking for clonic strictures, you're ruling out inflammatory bowel disease and ischemia, and if you're going to plan to do a surgery, you'd want to make sure there's no incidental right-sided lesions that would change the extent of your resection or the timing of your approach. And so, once again, going back to the ACRS guidelines, if they haven't had a recent colon evaluation, then we still recommend a colonoscopy six to eight weeks after symptom resolution. And just from a practical standpoint, uh, since I have a lot of diverticulitis in my practice, if you do these uh, patients at 6.1 weeks, a lot of times the colon's still cooling off and you find yourself with a sigmoid stricture. It's best to wait perhaps a little bit longer than that, and uh, don't be afraid to bail if it's not completely cooled off because you don't want to perforate the patient. So regardless, once they're better 
and you've found uh, the colonoscopy ruled out other problems, the patient's going to come back into your office and ask you what to do next. And unfortunately, they receive a lot of misinformation from a lot of different sources. Their friends and family, primary care doctors, other surgeons, unfortunately, and also the internet. If you Google diverticulitis, one of the uh, first things that pops up is how colon cleansing is going to relieve your diverticulitis and how a chiropractor can influence and help your diverticulitis as well. And so some of the top search terms are, are essentially worthless to actually treat diverticulitis and prevent recurrences. And so it's our job to educate the patient on what to expect. And so the first thing they want to know is how can they avoid future attacks? And they'll ask you, what, what can I eat? Um, a lot of us still recommend a high-fiber diet. It has been well studied. It's got relatively conflicting results. Most population studies show a lower rates of diverticulitis in patients that have a high-fiber diet. Uh, red meat uh, is associated with higher rates of diverticulitis in men, which is sort of sad for um, me living in Omaha, but especially unprocessed uh, red meat such as beef, pork, and lamb. Processed meat such as hot dogs, salami, and bologna is uh, a little safer. And then the classic thing that people are told to avoid is nuts, seeds, and popcorn because they say that you know these little seeds can get stuck in the diverticulum and perforate. And thankfully, there was a landmark study in 2008 that was pop, uh, published in JAMA uh, that debunked this myth and basically showed that there's really no difference. You can eat all the nuts, seeds, and popcorn in the world, and restricting that's not going to be beneficial. Uh, most of the medical community has not read that study, and so it's still very common. Uh, what about medications and lifestyle to prevent future attacks? I mentioned misalamine. Uh, that's been used in studies, but there's really no role for routine use for pro uh, prevention or prophylaxis uh, because all the trials are small and mixed. Although one thing that is very important is that cigarette smoking is associated with increased risk of diverticular disease. Now, we don't know if smoking cessations can prevent recurrence, although I tell my patients that it does. But in general, we do recommend they quit smoking if they want uh, no further attacks. So that being said, they're going to want to know what's the chance that they have another attack. And, and the recurrence rate was previously overestimated, probably because the definition of diverticulitis was variable. They didn't necessarily have confirmatory CT scans. They just came into their uh, primary care doctor's office with some left-sided abdominal pain, got antibiotics, got better regardless, and uh, they called that recurrence. But modern series reports that about 13 to 34% of patients that have a single episode of uncomplicated diverticulitis will have a second episode. And the best data suggest the number to be about 25% if you want to give your patients just one number. Of those that have a recurrence, 5 to 12 will, 5 to 12% of patients overall will experience more than one recurrence. So basically, 25% of people that have recurrence will have a second recurrence, and that rate continues to go up with more attacks. And so if you've had five, six attacks, you're probably going to have more diverticulitis in the future. Um, the good news is that diverticulitis is not a progressive disease, which is a very important thing to point out. The first attack is typically the worst attack. The severity of recurrent disease tends to mirror the initial presentation. And after an episode of uncomplicated diverticulitis, only about 4 to 5% of patients are going to develop a complicated recurrence. So only 5% of them are going to have something worse than what they had at presentation. The reason that's important is that the old dogma was you should do an elective interval colectomy to get that horrible colon out so the patient won't go on to develop sepsis and perforate and require heart rates and, and a colostomy. And the vast majority of emergency colectomies, though, are performed for the patient's first episode. And so that's just not real. Even with poorly defined indications for emergency surgery, it's usually the first episode that ends up in the operating room. And so... Basically, the ASCS practice parameters talked about this as well, and they said the estimated risk of needing emergency surgery with stoma formation is 1 in 2,000 patient years of follow-up. And so the practice of recommended 
elective colectomy to prevent this should be discouraged. And so uh, that's a very important thing to talk about. And there's also the thought that we should operate somehow based on the number of attacks. And the classic textbook recommendation, I, I grew up reading the Sabiston 17th edition, and in there they made it very clear that colectomy is warranted after somebody's had two uncomplicated attacks. About five years later, they came out with a new study that said, well, we've done the math, actually, it's three attacks. And then after that, another study came out and said, well, you know, we did a, a cost analysis and, it, and it's four attacks. And what you're seeing over time is that uh, our threshold for current attacks is going up and up as we understand the disease better. And so current recommendations focus more on the severity attacks and less on the number of attacks. And what I mean by that is if somebody has left lower quadrant abdominal pain, once a year, and they get three days of Cipro and get better, they can have 40 attacks, keep their colon, and, and I sleep like a baby at night because I know they're not going to get sicker. So the decision to operate on uncomplicated disease these days is based more on the severity of attacks, and the frequency of attacks, and the associated patient disability. And so if they're having a lot of pain, uh, if they're missing work due to attacks, if they're having to get hospitalized and the bills are stacking up, uh, if, and then probably the most common thing that I hear in my practice, they say, well, I feel like right after I get over one attack, another one starts. And so smoldering diverticulitis or chronic lingering symptoms that don't respond to medical therapy are probably the, the main reason that I do surgery on uncomplicated disease in 2018. Uh, age is also something that should be considered. Uh, the classic textbook recommendation, same textbook, colectomy should be recommended at, even after a single episode if you're less than 50 years old because diverticulitis is hypothetically more virulent in this group. But current evidence does not support that. And after an uncomplicated attack, age does not have an, any independent determinant of surgical intervention. So somebody's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, we treat them the same. There is one group of patients that should be talked about uh, individually, and that's immunocompromised patients. Um, specifically, those who have received a solid organ transplant, people that are on chronic corticosteroids, uh, and then AIDS patients. They, the data for this is poor overall, but what we know is that the incidence, for instance, of diverticulitis in the transplant population is about 1%. Uh, that means about 8% of those that have known diverticulosis, so you're not going to be doing uh, you know, prophylactic colectomies. But... These patients, these immunocompromised patients, when they get diverticulitis, first of all, there's very high rates of complicated disease, up to 40%, and there's a very high mortality for emergency surgery that in some studies has been as high as 50%, but you know, more reasonable studies show about a 19 to 23% mortality for emergency surgery for diverticulitis in a transplant patient. And but we also know at the same time that if you do elective surgery on these patients, um, that the morbidity and mortality and stoma rates are very similar to immunocompetent patients. And so in, most experts recommend a lower threshold for operative intervention during an acute attack, and elective resection may be more appropriate after a single uncomplicated attack in this unique uh, patient group. Some technical points about a sigmoid colectomy. Uh, you know, this is usually done laparoscopically. I'm sure you'll find some people at different institutions that like to use, you know, play with the robot as well. I tend to be more uh, of a straight or hand-assisted laparoscopic person for this case. Uh, important points to point out is that usually a more technically challenging operation than a colectomy done for cancer. You know, the sigmoid phlegmon can be very heavy and difficult to manipulate with laparoscopic graspers. There's also inflammation at the left lateral pelvic sidewall that makes it difficult to find and spare the left ureter. Um, and then additionally, you can have abscesses down in the pelvis uh, that make it difficult to get below the area of inflammation and find healthy rectum to sew to. 
And so some technical points, I tend to have very liberal use of uh, ureteral stents for these patients. Uh, I almost never use it for other cases, but for diverticulitis, I use stents almost routinely when I'm doing elective operations. And then a liberal use of hand assistance. If the case is not going well and you're not getting good exposure, you know, I typically make about a six to seven centimeter fan and steel incision to extract the specimen uh, for straight laparoscopy. I make about an eight centimeter incision to place a hand port there. Um, and you have to decide how much you're willing to struggle to save one or two centimeters of incision. That's especially important if the patient's got a large sigmoid phlegmon because you're going to have to make the incision big enough to extract it anyways. Steps to the case. Um, I prefer a medial to lateral approach. And so after placing ports and putting the patient in severe trendelenburg, you get the small bowel swept out of the way, you elevate the rectosigmoid, and you incise the peritoneum on the medial side of the mesentery at the level of the sacral promontory, which will allow you to enter the presacral space. You find your inferior mesenteric artery, you lift it uh, anterior, and you separate the colonic mesentery from the retroperitoneum. You can identify the artery at that point, and it's important to trace it both up and down. Trace it up so you don't accidentally get it when you're taking the, the artery and down because it's most adherent at the lateral pelvic sidewall, which is a little bit more uh, caudal than where you initially identify it. You can form a low ligation of the inferior mesenteric artery. I use Ligature for that, uh, but any sort of energy device or stapler is fine. I mobilize the splenic flexure on every single patient getting diverticulitis uh, surgery. I've never regretted it. Uh, People talk about redundant colons, but the sigmoid colon is usually what's redundant, and you're removing that. The descending colon is rarely that redundant, so I'm not the type of person that likes to leave sigmoid colon in there, and uh, so I'm a routine flexion mobilizer. It's also important you transect distal to the rectosigmoid junction. Two big common mistakes people make with diverticulitis surgery. The first is they'll do a colocolonic anastomosis, basically re leave a residual stump of sigmoid distally. This is one of the biggest predictors of recurrent disease and is a big no-no in our field, uh, but it's very common. And then the other thing people do, well, they'll, they'll get down to the rectum, but they'll use inflamed rectum. If it's a distal perforation with the pelvic abscess or something like that, you'll find yourself having to dissect down a little bit more distally on the rectum to find healthy tissue to sew to. So, in conclusion, the approach to uncomplicated diverticulitis continues to evolve. Less aggressive treatment strategies are safe and effective, and currently, probably the best resource to guide your therapy is 2014 ASCRS practice parameters, which is free on their website. You can review that uh, for a more in-depth uh, discussion. Thank you very much for that excellent overview, Dr. Langenfeld. If you want to connect with Dr. Langenfeld and ask him any further questions, he is on Twitter. His account is at Sean Langenfeld. Again, we have that in our show notes. Until next time, dominate the day.